Good morning again, everyone. Uh, We're continuing in our sermon series on spiritual formations, looking at some of the rhythms that the Bible offers or recommends for us to inhabit in our everyday lives to grow spiritually, to be nourished spiritually, to become more like Jesus. And this morning, we're looking at the idea of suffering, not necessarily the big traumatic type of suffering, but just the everyday uh, mundane things that you and I deal with, everyday difficulties. Um, Let me read our New Testament reading, and then I'll pray for us. This is James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind." That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Believers, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliations, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossom, its blossom fails and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, as we think about how you have ordered life. As we think about the fact that many of us are going about everyday challenges and everyday difficulties, and that few, if any of us, are spiritual heroes, spiritual giants who are going about life in victorious ways that everyone wants to emulate. Most of us are just getting out of bed and trying to make do with the life that is before us. Father, I pray that you would be with us in that that we would seek to grow, that we would seek to see the difficult, mundane challenges that we face each and every day as ways in which we can grow, as things that you have put in front of us in order to help us persevere, in order to teach us patience, in order to ultimately grant us true and lasting joy. Father, for those of us who are here this morning who may be suffering in incredible grief, who may be going through something very traumatic, I pray that we would in no way make light of that situation, that we would not look for easy answers, that certainly you do everything for the good of your people, but that we wouldn't belittle someone's traumatic experience by pointing them away uh, from grief and the appropriate angst that comes with suffering. Lord, I pray that in all of this, that we would be able to see Jesus that we will be able to be united more fully with Him and serve Him more fully. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. A number of years ago, the Toronto Weekly, which is sort of their 
analog for the Willamette Week, ran a story that was picked up nationally called Welcome to Your Quarter-Life Crisis. And they noticed something similar to the midlife crisis that was happening in the lives of 20 and 30-somethings. And they said this phenomenon, known as the quarter-life crisis, is as ubiquitous as it is intangible, unrelenting indecision, isolation, confusion, and anxiety about working. Relationships and direction is reported by people in their mid-20s to early 30s who are usually urban, middle-class, and well-educated. Those who should be able to capitalize on their youth, unparalleled freedom, and free-for-all individuation, but they can't make any decisions because they don't know what they want. They don't know what they want because they don't know who they are. And they don't know who they are because they're allowed to be anyone they want. Now, we should pause and consider how fortunate it would be to have a quarter-life crisis in our 30s because by that math, we're going to live to be 120. But the article goes on to say, when a contemporary 25-year-old's parents were 25, they weren't concerned with keeping their options open. They were purposely buying houses, making babies, and making partner. Now who we are and what we do is up to us, as we are unbound to existing communities, families, and class structures that offer leisure and self-determination to just a few. Boomer and post-boom parents with money and autonomy, more money and autonomy than their predecessors had resulted in benignly self-indulgent children who were sold on their own uniqueness, place in the world, and right to fulfillment in a way that no previous generation felt entitled to. And an increasingly entrepreneurial, self-driven creation myth based upon personal branding, social networking, and untethered lifestyle spending is now responsible for their identities. Now, I don't want to oversimplify or belittle this sort of experience and this angst and maybe a crisis that some of us in this room are having, that making your way in the world in your 20s and 30s is increasingly difficult and challenging. But here's what's interesting to me about this passage or about this article and what is relevant to our passage in James is that each of these persons, what they were struggling with wasn't simply circumstances, it wasn't simply hurdles, but it was a controlling narrative that oriented them to the world. Notice what it said about them, that they had this idea of uniqueness that drove their personal spending and branding, that they felt entitled to profound personal fulfillment in their work. They were driven by a creation myth based upon personal identity and branding. The circumstances that this generation is experiencing is not all that different, if you look at it, from previous generations. But the myth, the grand narrative that illuminates their lives and drives them forward or keeps them static is very different. And it puts a certain spin on their circumstances leading to not just everyday challenges, but an existential crisis when they encounter a challenge. Now, James wants to give his readers, and he wants to give us a very different narrative about life. He wants us to have a certain spin on our circumstances, 
He wants us to adjust our perspective. And he says, first of all, verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials or challenges of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. There's a lot of important words in that one or two verses, but let's focus on two first of all, trials and perseverance. First of all, trials. What do you think when you hear that word? What did you think when we read that passage first? I don't know about you, but I tend to think tragedy, pain, loss, sorrow, something very traumatic. And certainly those things would qualify as trials, right? But why do our minds so naturally assume that trials are hardship, that they're a lack of something in our lives? This passage is aimed at all of life, the trials of hardship as well as the trials of prosperity, the great sorrows in life as well as just the everyday mundane, irritating difficulties that we have to do, go, go through day in and day out. It could be accident, sickness, poverty, but also wealth, also knowledge, skill, achievement, the daily grind. You see, trials in this perspective aren't necessarily the major tragedies of life, but the everyday difficulties that reveal your controlling narrative, that reveal the myth that you're living by or the truth that you're living by. Now, let's look, first of all, at trials of difficulty. Um, And we should say something right off the bat because James 1 is not the first word in grief counseling. That is, when you encounter someone who is struggling with something traumatic, your first word shouldn't be, consider it pure joy. You know, um, there's no basic, no expectation that because someone is a Christian, that when they encounter something difficulty, that their first reaction would be joy, pure joy. I didn't know what fun was until I had that car accident. <laughs> I'm just over the moon about losing my job. Remember Jesus with Mary and Martha. Their brother has died, and he comes to comfort them, and they're weeping. And he doesn't condemn their grief. He enters into it. He weeps with them. Anger and confusion and sadness are all very normal responses to acute pain. They're not signs that one is lacking faith. What James is talking mostly about is the circumstances of everyday life, the daily grind, the toil that reveals what we're living for. It reveals our telos of life, what we're aiming for in life. Everyday difficulties reveal the orientation of your heart, the fundamental commitments that you keep. In the article, the problem wasn't so much the circumstances of the 20 and 30-somethings. They were employed They had a roof over their heads. They had education. They had relative prosperity, especially relative to the rest of the world. But they still had a perception of being blocked from something very important, from some greater fulfillment, from having everything they hoped for. And because they didn't have everything they hoped for, something was wrong with life. And they had a crisis. Those things became not just challenges, but a crisis. One interviewee said, all sorts of half-forgotten acquaintances and abandoned friendships reappear in this, get this, this spreadsheet of potential reasons to feel horrible about yourself. 
If you're as petty as I am, you spend a lot of Facebook time gauging your own feelings of inadequacy in direct relation to other people's success. All these people you couldn't give a crap about a couple of years ago are now these omnipresent benchmarks and counterpoints to measure against whether you have or haven't got going on in your life. Children forget that one word that you probably perked up. Don't tell your parents that you can say it because I said it. I actually translated that from a a different word that was in the article. Everyday trials of lack, of feeling like we're missing out on something, that if I can't have everything, that we're completely crushed and disappointed. There's everyday trials in deficit, but there's also trials in success. What happens when we get it? When we're the ones on Facebook that everyone else is comparing their lives to negatively? No one wants the trial of poverty, but almost everyone wants the trial of prosperity, the trial of wealth and having things. Yet Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. We're talking about here in this series uh, about spiritual formation. And the Bible contains an enormous amount of warnings about having wealth and prosperity and possessions as a block to spiritual growth, as a hindrance to entering the kingdom, that wealth has this inverse relationship with our spiritual health. And this is because the the basic nature of sin is not moral misbehavior, but it's self-sufficiency, it's autonomy, it's wanting to be the Lord of your own life and the Lord of others' lives. So success, money, Possessions give us this illusion of lordship, this illusion of control because we can manipulate our circumstances and even other people to create comfort, to create spaces where we feel safe. It's easy to forget God when we have an abundance or wealth or power or social status or knowledge. You see, trials can come in difficulty and deficit, but also in prosperity and having things, having an abundance. It's nothing wrong with having an abundance. The Bible never talks negatively about a person having things, but it does caution them about the spiritual deficits and difficulties that lie in having things in abundance. So the first word we looked at was trials. What are trials? The everyday circumstances, everyday challenges. But also, we need to look at perseverance or endurance. Consider it joy because of what happens in your life, because it creates endurance and perseverance. Now, is James telling us that we should consider every challenge pure joy because it'll make you a better, stronger, happier, more mature person? Probably not. It's not that simple. We had a friend whose daughter was born with severe disabilities, and well-meaning Christians tried to comfort her over and over by telling her that God was going to make her a much more mature Christian through her daughter's condition. Well, perhaps that's ultimately true, but it's certainly not comforting. And how would you like to carry around that burden, that something happened really terrible to another person to make you a better person? Life is full of trials, full of discomfort, and yes, as you go through them, you have the opportunity to grow, and that's why we're talking about this in our spiritual formation series. You have the opportunity to develop spiritual resources that you didn't have 
before. But the point that James is making specifically here is much deeper than that. Endurance or perseverance is what that means as we read in the confession in 1 John, the confession of sin. It's continuing in Him. Here, he means continuing to cling to God throughout life. Continuing to believe despite the ups and downs and vicissitudes of life. Enduring life with faith. Ending the race. Completing your life. Continuing to hold on to Jesus and His rescue of you and His salvation. That's what James is talking about. That's the meaning of being mature and complete, not lacking anything. He's not talking about moral perfection, that through trials you become morally perfected. What he's talking about is that you end up in good health, that you have a sound assurance that your faith is genuine. As you go through life and as you encounter difficulties, small and large, Insofar as you continue to cling to the gospel and cling to Jesus in the midst of those things, it shows you that your faith is real and is genuine and is authentic. It's not the person who's able to put a smile on in the midst of devastating circumstances. That's stoicism or some kind of pathology. The one who has joy in having their faith in God, the one who has joy is the one who has joy has joy in seeing their faith in God confirmed. And it's being able to see the world rightly and to be able to locate and place trials in their appropriate category. And that's where we move into something different called wisdom. And really all of the book of James is about wisdom. It's more like Proverbs. It's about how to go through life with wisdom, that wisdom has a great deal of power. Let me talk about this and then we'll, we'll conclude. Power of wisdom is living according to a construal of reality that actually corresponds with the way things are. Wisdom is living according to a construal of reality that corresponds with the way things actually are. In other words, your fundamental commitments, your greatest hopes, your greatest wishes are compatible with ultimate reality. That's wisdom, and that's what James is trying to say here. He's trying to locate trials in terms of the way things actually are. And we should ask him for wisdom because it says that God gives generously to all without finding fault. Now, if this means that if you are faultless, then you can ask and get wisdom, we're all in trouble, right? That's not what he's saying. Instead, what James is telling us is that God gives wisdom without condition, without rebuke, that He simply wants you to ask with a genuine heart. And with wisdom, as God grants you wisdom, which is spiritual formation, you begin to possess three things. The understanding of the way things are, as I hinted at, the humble recognition of your place in the world, and perspective on the temporary nature of trials. First of all, and there's three of these, we'll go quickly. The wise person, first of all, understands the way things actually are. They see the world rightly. About 10 years ago, I went through a fairly humbling and revealing time in ministry. I found myself getting very tense and anxious and sweaty palms and just irritated when I was going about very regular ministry routines, preaching, counseling, 
leading meetings, and I would get very anxious, very tense. And I decided, well, I don't want to live like that anymore. Um, what can I do about it? And so I found a counselor, a spiritual director, and through a number of conversations, began to realize that what I was anxious about was blowing it. What I was anxious about and nervous about was being seen as unprepared, as a fraud, as a failure in some way. I was afraid of failure because success was how I was determining my self-worth and how I was attempting to control other people's opinions. And one thing that stuck out to me that this counselor said is, why do you expect you're not going to fail? How could that possibly be your expectation? Who hits a home run every time they step up to the plate? And because he put it in sports language, it was easy for me to understand. Verse 10, the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plants. plant. It, its blossom fails and its beauty is destroyed. You see, what he's saying is that life happens to you. Life comes upon you. You can't control life. It's a flood of circumstances that are coming your way. And of course you're going to blow it. And of course you're going to fail. Of course you're going to be unprepared for everything that you encounter. And what I saw was that my success was determined on doing something that was completely unrealistic. And my body knew that. My body began to get anxious and fluttery and weird. It was telling me, you're living a dream. You're living a lie. My happiness was based upon an impossibility. And someone wiser than I helped me to understand the way things actually are. That life is difficult. You're going to blow it at your job as a parent, as a child, as a spouse. You're going to fail. And sometimes just getting up and going to work and going through the everyday difficulties of life, sometimes that's heroic. Wisdom allows you to understand the way things actually are. Wisdom allows a humble recognition of your place in the world. You see, if we go through life thinking, I know the way that life should go, then life will baffle you and God will baffle you. If that's your assumption, that I know what's best for me and this church and this person next to me and my children and my spouse all the time, then life is going to baffle you. God is going to baffle you. The Bible is going to baffle you. Instead of saying, I know how things should be, the wise person says, I'm still learning. I don't know everything. I could be wrong, but God knows, and I can trust Him. Wisdom adjusts our life theories, our theory of reality, to, to His. And isn't that exactly what James is doing here? He's inviting us to see the world differently. Centuries ago, Isaac Newton determined that light was made up of particles. And if you work at Intel or you're a prophet, PSU or something like that, just give me a pass here. I think I'm right about this and how I'm describing this, but give me a break. Um, I think this is right. Light had qualities of particles, of being a particle or having particles. But then some other people began to notice a number of centuries later that light seemed to have also wave properties. And what happened in the testing grounds, however you tested this, is that if you asked a wave question, you got a wave answer. And if you asked a particle question, you got a particle answer. Well, what, what happened is once they checked their instruments and made sure 
their tests were correct, they didn't say, well, what's wrong with light? <laughs> it's not behaving like we know it should behave. No, they adjusted their theories. They adjusted their observations and said, it's both and. We don't know how. It's mysterious. But yes, these two things both exist. It's a wave and a particle. Instead, we begin to think our theory might be wrong. When we encounter things that baffle us, when we encounter things in the Bible that maybe baffle us, we think the wise person would say, maybe my theory about what the Bible is and how it works is wrong. Maybe my theory about life and ultimate reality needs to be adjusted. Maybe responding to trials with grief and angst is okay. It's correct, but it's incomplete. If you ask a, a human question of trials, you get a human answer. If you ask a God question, you get a God answer. Perhaps there's another way that trials work, and wisdom is able to see that. And then thirdly and finally, the wise person knows that suffering and trials are temporary. They're temporary. Why is it that when a woman finds out that she's pregnant, she's happy? She's over the moon, right? Most of them anyway. You just told her that for the next two to three months, she's going to probably be throwing up. She's not going to like any of the foods that she liked a few days ago. Nothing's going to sound good to her. Then she's going to get sick over and over. Then her body is going to get really, really big, and she'll be pretty much uncomfortable and hot most of the time for nine months. And then she'll have to endure this excruciating process at the end of nine months, and her body will not want to go back into the shape it was beforehand. And yet they're happy. They're delighted. They're over the moon that they're pregnant, even knowing all of that's going to happen. Well, why? Because she's not thinking about the difficulties physically, the trials. She's thinking about the delight of bringing new life into the world and holding that little baby. And that relativizes all of the pain and suffering and trial that she's going to undergo for nine months. Now, why do I say that? Because we need to understand that suffering and trials are temporary and that there's something, what James calls the crown of life, that is at the end. If this world is all there is, see, then of course challenges are crises. They're not just difficulties because you've got to get all your happiness now. And you've got probably between 75 and 80 years, not 120. So if anything threatens your chances at acquiring happiness, you're not disappointed, you're devastated. Your pursuit of love, your fulfillment of, at work, building financial reserves, approval of your peers, these become absolute non-negotiables. You have to have them or else, and you have to have them now. And as such, they become gods that control you telling you that you'll never be a whole, happy, fruitful person without them. That's your controlling narrative. The problem with the people in that article, the problem with many of us, is not our circumstances, but it's the controlling narrative that we live by that interprets our circumstances. And what James is wanting to do is to reinterpret them for us and give us reasons why the wise person can deal with difficulties without falling apart, without falling to pieces. James is most likely the, the younger brother of Jesus. 
how would you like to grow up with Jesus as an older brother? He'd probably be nice to you and not pick on you and not hit you, um, but he'd be better at you than everything too. Every time you misbehaved, you know, Mary would say, can't you be more like Jesus? Wouldn't it be difficult too to believe that your brother was the Messiah? Wouldn't it be difficult to think that this guy that was down the hall from you or in the little, you know, shack was the king of the universe? Well, there's some indication in the Gospels that he was, in fact, dubious. But we see in Acts, James becoming a pastor, James becoming a shepherd, James becoming a wise church leader that is staking everything on the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and who he said he was. You see, what had happened is that his life and his understanding of ultimate reality had been reinterpreted. Just as James is wanting to reinterpret ours, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus completely reinterpreted James's view of ultimate reality and what was going on in the world. It gave him a new controlling narrative. And if Jesus, the Son of God, his brother in that circumstance, endured great trial and suffering, it means that God doesn't stand far off from our suffering and from our trials, that they aren't meaningless. And if Jesus rose from the dead, if he gained victory over death, then there's reason to hope. There's reason to believe that your sorrows and your trials not only are not meaningless, but will be ultimately redeemed. And James says finally, and we'll conclude here, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that is the test of life, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised, promised to those who love Him. Let's pray. Lord, so many of these promises uh, seem so very far away and intangible and hard to uh, wrap our heads around. They seem at times impractical. The difficulties and trials that we are facing start again in just a few minutes or start again on Monday. Lord, I pray that we would somehow, not of our own strength but in yours, that we would carry the realities that you are king of the world, that you lived, died, and were resurrected on our behalf, and that we would see you in the everyday details of life, that we would begin to ask, what is God wanting to show me? What are you wanting to do in my life through this particular circumstance? We pray that we would see you in those things and cling to your promise and promises in the midst of them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.